Hey, it's Drex from This Week Health Cyber and Risk Community, and I want to invite you to our next webinar. It's going to focus on what else? Defending health data. I'll be chatting with experts from Rubrik and Microsoft. Register right now at thisweekhealth.com slash rubric webinar. That's all one string, R-U-B-R-I-K webinar, thisweekhealth.com slash rubric webinar. See you online soon. Today on This Week Health. I think killing projects is a really good thing. And I think that that attitude is something I would say tech companies are a lot better at. They're just much more agile and able to kind of ruthlessly chop something off that's not working and then take the learnings and, and take it either to a new place or not bother with it at all. It's Newsday. My name is Bill Russell. I'm a former CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week Health, a channel dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. Special thanks to CrowdStrike, Proofpoint, ClearSense, Meditech, Cedar sinai Accelerator, TalkDesk, and Dr. First, who are our Newsday show sponsors for investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. All right, it's Newsday, and today we are going to talk about a lot of fun things. We're going to talk about quiet quitting. We're going to talk about the telehealth expansion and maybe a little bit of Amazon Care conversation as well. Today we're joined by Melissa Morris, CEO of Lantum. Melissa, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to the conversation. This is the first time we're meeting, literally. You are in London. Give us a little idea of, of what Lantum does and what your role is. Yeah, so yes, yeah, so I'm the CEO and founder of Lantum. And we're a workforce management platform for healthcare organizations to better connect with and engage with their workforce. So specifically, it's a scheduling tool. But it's a we call it connected scheduling. So it really kind of connects with not only your full time staff, but also any kind of moonlighters or float pool that you need to ensure to fill any shift gaps that you've got. So you you started in Europe and you're doing work in the States these days? That's right. Yeah. Started in started in London. We've now got 3000 plus clients in London that we work with across primary care and across hospitals. And then we launched in the US with Cedar sinai as our first hospital that we work with. So we've got a small office based in LA and we're just expanding out in the US right now. Cool. Do you spend much time in LA? Yes. Luckily, I, I do get to spend quite a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> luckily, luckily, I I used to live in Huntington Beach, and I would go up to Cedar sinai from time to time. That is not a commute I wish on anyone. People are like, well, how long is it? I'm like, 45 minutes to three hours. It, it <laughs> yeah, yeah. just depends Depends on when you do it. Anybody in LA talks about the traffic as much as British people talk about the weather. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> All right, so we're going to hit some stories. We'll start with the quiet quitting story, and this is one of those that's starting to impact healthcare. So here it is, quiet quitting. This is from Becker's Hospital Review. And it says, the title is, what does quiet quitting look like at hospitals? So the trend of quiet quitting has recently gained traction on social media, referring to a phenomenon in which workers, it encourages workers to reduce their enthusiasm at work and stick to the minimum expectations of the role. Some professionals, including Gen Z workers, have embraced the concept as an increased form of work-life balance, and others see it as a lesser version of actually quitting. Regardless of how the individual interprets the idea, the concept is not new among U.S. workforce or in healthcare, according to Jeremy Sadlier, 
Executive Director of American Society for Healthcare Human Resources Administration. Let me ask you this, and I'm going to go through more of the story, but he talks about the fact that this isn't a new phenomenon, but it feels like it is pandemic induced somewhat. Like we've really pushed this workforce to the brink and they're like, is this really worth it? It feels like, and I don't, maybe I'm missing that. What's your feeling on this whole idea of quiet quitting? Yeah, so I think the pandemic definitely has a lot to do with it. So I think the first thing we saw after the pandemic was this whole great resignation. People were quitting their roles, not just in healthcare, but healthcare was particularly affected. People just leaving in their droves or reducing their commitments. I think essentially the same thing. So anybody that's kind of winding down their enthusiasm or working less hard, I think a lot of that is because people feel like, yeah, they've been pushed to the limit. And they feel like mentally they deserve some downtime and they've kind of built up a mental tally and they're kind of thinking, well, I've worked so hard during the last two years. I think it's time I deserve some downtime. I think the other thing is that the great resignation piece is kind of tailed off a little bit because I think the cost of living crisis and all of that kind of, you know, people's fear of actually not being able to meet their daily commitments there just aren't as many jobs around as there were during the great resignation when that was all kind of gaining a lot of traction I think that people now are okay instead of quitting this is another way of quitting or reducing my commitment doing the very bare minimum so I think it's sort of a combination of the pandemic but I think also just what's going on in the economy as well people are afraid that if they quit they won't get another job so instead they're just doing it I have a couple of theories around this one is you just go back to mega trends. This is a demographic shift we saw coming for a while, right? So the baby boom generation in the US, I'm talking specifically, but probably it applies to Europe. I mean, the baby boom generation moves through the, the cycle. They move out of the workforce. So we're going to have less workers to support more people. In healthcare, that means more sick people, more aging people, or more people utilizing the system and less workers to actually do that. The other thing I noted before on the show is we have a transfer of wealth going on in this country, which is unprecedented. So as the baby boom generation moves out and they die, they could potentially leave. Even, even a worker that was like a steel worker will die with a house and something else and pass that on to the kids. And it's, it's not a small amount of money. A house could be 200 to half million dollars. And so we have this, this transfer of wealth. Plus when you look at the pandemic statistics, a majority of the people who died were in that baby boom generation. They were the elderly who had amassed some wealth. So they're passing the wealth on. I think that led to the initial round or partially led to the initial round of the great resignation of people going, hey, I could take a year off. Potentially, I could take two years off. And they were a little burnt out and they're like, let's just see where it goes. But I think you're right. I think the, the inflation, the cost of living has sort of scared people back into the workforce, but they're coming back in with a different mindset altogether. Mm -hmm. Let me give you a little bit more from this story. So in healthcare, this phenomenon has only grown. An April Gallup poll found that 34% of US employees were actively engaged at work in 2021 compared to only 32% this year. Healthcare professionals saw the largest dip in engagement with their engagement scores dropping nine points year over year. Any yeah. lack of engagement on the part of staff ultimately impacts patient care, teamwork, safety and throughput, all of which impact the financial health of the organization and the patient experience. It's incredibly important for leaders 
to focus on engagement, growth, opportunities, and to recognize and reward work. We all have employees. How do we keep this from happening and how do we maintain engaged employees? So I think there's a few things. I think there's a question of why is healthcare more affected? So I think one is the pandemic really tired to help people in healthcare out like big time. I think the other thing is healthcare is less flexible. So a lot of other organizations have been able to adapt. So for example, at Lantern, we've allowed people to work flexibly. So if they want to work from home three days a week and they're in the office two days, then they can be. If they want to, some people actually in our workforce have moved abroad and they're able to work from abroad and still deliver their like role to the full capacity. In healthcare, that's not possible. You often have to be physically in the organization and there really isn't as much flexibility in terms of the hours you work. So I think that lack of flexibility is what made this affect healthcare more. I think another thing is like, when you just think about what really does engage people, people really just need three things. It's autonomy, mastery, and purpose in their role. And I think in healthcare, I think you can get to mastery. There's a sort of quite a, a clear progression to progress through your career. And purpose, I think no one ever disputes the people who work in healthcare have a purpose. But I think autonomy is really lacking. And I think there is a high degree of control and supervision in healthcare. And I think that's what kind of makes people lose a lot of enthusiasm when they just kind of almost switch off and just do what they're told or they take the shifts that they're told to take. And I think this combined with all the other factors is what's really meaning that healthcare is being more affected than other industries. Yeah, it's, by the way, I agree with, I agree with everything you said. I mean, we have created an interesting workforce situation, not only across all industries, but within healthcare, you have people that are remote, people that do have flexibility and then you have those that do not. They have to still come into the facility and deliver care and sit behind a desk or whatever they happen to do. And I think within that, we have to look at the culture that we're creating. I think this is the exit question on this one. So I feel like this is sort of like a snow globe. We had the pandemic, we shook it up and all the snow is flying around on the snow globe but I'm not sure it's gonna go back to where it was. So we've created, so many things have changed within healthcare. I think a lot of the player, and we're gonna get into Amazon Care, and we're gonna get into some of the other players. The world of healthcare is changing. I mean, it's, it is and it isn't, right? I mean, the payment model's not changing all that rapidly. Things in healthcare don't change all that rapidly, but the pandemic has shook things up so much. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to CIOs all the time, and different healthcare leaders, the uh, number of organizations doing reductions right now is pretty significant. So we have that dynamic here happening as well. Has the world of healthcare changed? And we just, I mean, we know that it's changed, but has it changed in a way that's not going back to the way it was and we just haven't recognized it yet? I think so. And I think it's happening like starting with the workforce. So you know, this whole topic is really interesting because I think that what's making the healthcare system change is the workforce. And it's almost like we're kind of going to this almost new world order where the workers are gonna have almost more control than ever before because they're a lot of them voting with their feet. And you're seeing these huge trends, just like massive reduction in the workforce that can deliver care. Many of them winding down as we were just discussing. And I think that that's gonna have to force like change 
because beforehand the workers were not actually, they didn't have as much power as they had before. So I think that's really what's going to kind of create the tides of change in my view. So this, this might be the change that we saw in the industrial revolution where the workers finally have a, a say as health healthcare leadership teams, I would assume it's going to be really important to, to create those connections and to be discussing with that workforce what the future looks like. And yeah. maybe healthcare doesn't look the same and we create a new norm coming out of this. Yeah. And I think the other kind of thing that obviously we've seen a big shift is just like patients being able to access healthcare really cheaply. So obviously we've seen a lot of these tech companies that will obviously talk about later that are kind of providing telehealth and like remote ways of being able to access healthcare much, much more cheaply than ever before. Primary care in general isn't a, a part of the market that people have entered into in a big way because there's not as much money there that the margins are thinner. But because now there's been a big shift in the adoption of technology and also how cheap it is now to create technology, we've seen that now patients can access that front door much easier. And I think that's going to see a big shift as well as in what we see then flow down to the acute. So I think that's another kind of big shift as well. And I guess kind of joining those two things together, it'll be really interesting to see Amazon's obviously making progressively greater, greater entry into this space. Are they going to actually crack this workforce problem and treat the workers in the way that they want to be treated, like giving them more flexibility? And then will those workers then move more towards primary care and reduce their commitments in the hospital sector? I don't know. I think that might be quite an interesting thing to, to navigate and to look at. Because I think whoever can essentially kind of own that workforce piece or crack that workforce piece will be basically in a very, very good position to, to win in the market. I want to take a moment and share our next webinar, Patient Room Next, Improving Care Efficiency. The patient room is evolving inside and outside of the four walls of your health system. What is coming next to improve clinical effectiveness through technology with guests from health systems from around the country? We will discuss machine vision, ambient listening, AI, care companions, and much more. Before the webinar, check out the briefing campaigns being released on our channel now, as we speak, conversations with leaders from Monument Health, Intermountain Healthcare, and, and they're just going to build the excitement for this webinar conversation we're having on September 29th. You can find these episodes and register for the webinar at our website, thisweekhealth.com. Just look at the top right-hand corner. We have upcoming webinars right there in the top right. So love to have you join us. Please check it out. Now back to our show. I was going to go to the telehealth report next and then go to Amazon. But since you brought it up, I'll go to the Amazon story. So we have Fierce Healthcare did a story. What's next for Amazon healthcare strategy? Amazon care may be done, but that's not the end of the Amazon's bold healthcare ambitions. Industries insiders say Amazon, they're going to shutter Amazon care. The general consensus is that it wasn't going to scale. And with the acquisition of one medical, one medical has already scaled and has a couple things that that Amazon didn't have. So one medical has 8,000 employees, company operates 188 clinics in 29 markets, also has 767,000 members. One medical represents a more mature, advanced primary care model compared to that, what Amazon had built. And with that deal, Amazon also gains footprint in the Medicare space to serve patients 65 and older with one medical's Iora health line of business. So. And then they go out and they talk to some some 
industry watchers who say essentially, you could look at this and say, Amazon Care failed, Haven failed, the JP Morgan Berkshire Amazon partnership. And some speculated that Amazon was going to pull back. We knew that Amazon wasn't going to pull back. They just made some major hires with industry insiders that we knew that they were just reformulating their strategy. So that's obviously where they're going. And I'm trying to think if there's anything else I want to point out from this story. One of the things that they say, they believe that Amazon is moving away from the employer healthcare space and more to the direct to consumer opportunities. They're just repositioning themselves to go after that market. When you heard this story, what was your first reaction to shuttering Amazon Care after expanding it to 50 states and getting the licenses and doing all those things, signing up some major players, Peloton and and, and uh, Whole Foods and others? So I, I didn't at all think that this was a failure, actually. I think, firstly, we can't speculate what Amazon decided that success looked like. I, I mean, hindsight is obviously easier, but it looks to me like getting into 50 states, but only with a handful of employers, I think they only had half a dozen employers, tells me that they essentially just want to learn about every single state, how the licensing works, and essentially use it as a as a way to just learn how the market works. Because they haven't actually tried to scale this in a big way, because they've only got half a dozen employers, but they tried to get spread across every single state. So I think to me, it seems like they wanted to just do this as a learning exercise rather than as a, as a scaling exercise. I think the other thing to note is that the timing of the announcement is very interesting because they actually haven't completed that deal fully with that's, um, that's, a, that, that, that's an important thing to note isn't it yeah and i think that obviously they're shutting one thing down but they wanted to announce one medical at the same time almost to tell shareholders in the market that they are not planning on winding down in fact they want to scale up but they've still got these capabilities that they've built in-house through these interesting partnerships with haven and yeah so i think I think in general, I think it would be easy to look at it and deduce, oh, they failed. But I just think actually there's a lot of things pointing at the fact that this is just a step in their journey. And I think that they've actually, I think it's all planned. So yeah, for me, I don't, I wouldn't say it's a failure. I think the other thing is that you need to think about how Amazon works. So Amazon generally, their whole, their whole thing is the experience for a consumer and how that consumer essentially interacts with all of Amazon's different products how cross-sell and upsell happens. Obviously they own PillPack. I think they bought, did they buy that in 2018 or 2019 around then? And so it's sort of, in order for that to really get the synergies that they, that they want to, they, they, they need to almost have some creative destruction, cut some of these things which are almost siloed and actually just put it back into a completely new customer experience. I think also killing projects is a, is a really good thing. And I think, the markets should think this is a good thing. I remember once I went on a tour of Google X and they were saying that they've got this culture of killing projects and essentially they encourage people and incentivize people to kill projects with pride rather than getting too attached to it because you worked on it or because there's some cost that you put into it to make it work. And I think that actually that attitude is something I would say tech companies are a lot better at. They're just much more agile and able to kind of ruthlessly chops something off it's not working and then take the learnings and, and and take it either to a new place or not bother with it at all so i think that 
yes, maybe it seems like cutting this project or, or shutting something down might be interpreted as a bad thing, but my bet is on the fact that this is actually all planned and all just part of the journey of kind of them carefully learning the capabilities at a kind of lowish risk and then scaling through acquisition. So let me ask you a business strategy question here. So I'm going to compare Microsoft and Amazon. Because Amazon appears to be in healthcare, they set themselves up as a competitor to healthcare providers. And so they have other services, right? They have Amazon Web Services. They have some logistics services as well that you could purchase. They have some data services as well that you could purchase. If you're a health system, you're looking at all those things and going, yeah, I mean, should I really partner with them? They could be my next competitor. Everything I read is they're my next competitor. On the flip side, you have Microsoft. Microsoft has no healthcare ambitions other than to serve healthcare. And that's clear. We have Office 365, we have Azure, you can do Epic in Azure, you can do all sorts of things. And so they sort of, they play that, that we serve healthcare as we serve other industries. And quite frankly, we serve all of healthcare. We could serve competitors in healthcare just fine. Is Amazon hurting some of their other businesses by not going all in on healthcare and just sort of playing on the periphery and saying, hey, we are going to get into healthcare at some point, or is it just, is it just the reality that they have to live with, which is at a market cap that they're at, they have to play in this $4 trillion space mm -hmm. in order to drive additional market cap. I mean, they can't ignore healthcare. No, I think, it's, I think it's a really good question. I think like on the competitor side, I definitely know that you know, some of the large healthcare providers are are wary of Amazon and they are concerned to partner with them because they don't trust them essentially and they can see that you know, Amazon is trying to make a play into the market. It looks really like Amazon is really just trying to make a play into primary care. I think the barriers to entry are, are lower there. They can serve people at scale. They can kind of do a lot of their kind of consumer marketing that's worked in other parts of Amazon. I think there's synergies there where they can kind of capture the audience. Obviously then the link with PillPack. I mean, the other thing, and I guess, so I think that if you're a primary care provider, I would say you'd be more nervous than if you were an acute provider. I don't know, and I, I can't really see how they would get into hospitals. Yeah, I don't, I don't see them getting into hospitals either, but that fight at the primary care space is fascinating to me. As, as a primary care physician, I think you're in the catbird seat right now. United Healthcare Optum is buying up those practices. You have health systems buying up those practices. You have private equity buying up those practices and rolling them up. I mean, at this point, you're just sitting there going, all right, I'm just waiting for the phone call, waiting for somebody to knock on my door. Because for, for whatever reason, this whole primary care space is the battleground right now. Because I think the premise is if we control, that's the entry point into healthcare. And if we control that entry point, we can... PillPack's been rebranded Amazon Pharmacy. We can lead people to Amazon Pharmacy. We can lead people to our CVS doing the same thing, essentially, at this point. We can lead people to our stores. We can lead people to, I mean, they're they're leading the healthcare buying decisions, it would, it would appear. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's the front door of healthcare, isn't it? So it's like everybody kind of goes through there before they go anywhere else. And I think if you can just remove, I think removing the barriers to entry for the 
patient as well means that not only have they already got this captive audience of people coming in, they can grow it as well because there are a lot of people that are not actually using primary care as they could. So there's a whole piece around that market can be grown. Yeah, I agree. Like it's that whole thing of waiting for the phone call. I mean, it, it's been ripe for consolidation for a very long time, but I think the te technology has not been there to make it economically viable for anybody to make a big play into that market. Whereas I think now the cost of care delivery have got come down so much, particularly like through the pandemic that I think now that's why it's kind of really starting to accelerate. But yeah, I mean, consolidation has been on the cards for a long time. And I think, yeah, we'll start to see that pick up a lot. All right. Last story, telehealth expansion under the microscope by HHS office of inspector general. So OIG, and we talked about this when the pandemic was going on and they put these allowances in place where CMS and others were going to pay for telehealth services and it spiked, it spiked significantly over the first, let's say year of the pandemic. And the thing I was saying back then is we are going to have so much data to finally look at to see if, I mean, because we've been, we, we were just playing around with it. It was like 2%, 1%, 3% in some health mm -hmm. systems. And then all of a sudden it spiked. And so here's, here's a little excerpt. CMS is evaluating the continuation of telehealth services that were temporarily added during the COVID-19 emergency. Medicare beneficiaries used 114 million telehealth services from March 2020 through February 2021. It's important to note that was the peak. So this amounts to 88 times more telehealth services compared to a year prior to the pandemic when beneficiaries used 1.3 million telehealth services. Over half of these telehealth services 60.1 million in total were used by beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare fee-for-service. In total, Medicare paid out $5.1 billion for these services, 76 times more than what it paid for telehealth in the prior year. Again, it's important to note, March 2020 to February 2021 was the peak. And if you measure February or March 2021 to February 2022, I think you're going to see that that line is going to go way up and then come back to higher than it was before, but a little lower. Some of their findings, and I'll, I'll come back over to you. Beneficiaries in urban areas were more likely than those in rural areas to use telehealth, which I guess, I don't know, that's interesting. It just sure demographics, maybe numbers. Dually eligible Hispanic younger and female beneficiaries were also more likely than others to use telehealth. Almost one-fifth of beneficiaries used certain audio-only telehealth services. The vast majority of those beneficiaries use them exclusively. Older beneficiaries were more likely to use certain audio-only services. And th what they're looking at right now is to inform how lawmakers look at this, policymakers look at this around the concepts of access, quality of care, cost, and program integrity. Can we afford to keep doing this? So those are the four things they're looking at. I don't know what the question is here other than uh, I, I guess they're looking at the numbers during that peak time and saying, hey, we can't afford to keep doing this, but things like mental health were accessed significantly. We see that the access could be different across different demographics and those kind of things. But we now have a ton of data. Where do you think this is going to go? So I guess it's an interesting one, isn't it? So I think kind of the way that the article was worded implies, and I'm not sure if I 
read it exactly as it's supposed to be interpreted, but kind of implies that, oh, this seems like a massive spend, so should we look at cutting this? And I think it's really strange to look at this just in isolation and decide, oh, it's, this is too much money, we should cut it. Because what I'd really want to know is, as a whole, you know, what has been the spend? Has this replaced more costly face-to-face -face appointments, for example? Has this reduced more acute attendances? Has it managed to reduce average length of stay? Can you discharge patients faster because you can give them better remote care? So I think there's a lot. I don't think you can really just look at this number and say, oh, this is massive, and then actually decide, oh, we're spending too much. Because I think the what we really need to know, and it's interesting about the data point, because yeah, there is a lot of data, but there is not enough data on a kind of longevity point of view. So we do not know yet if the increasing people's access to telehealth is actually going to prolong someone's life, or is it going to actually prevent disease, or is it going to particularly on the mental health piece, like if people are able to access mental health more easily through telehealth, is that going to prevent other things later down the line? So I think, yes, there's a lot of data because there's more people using it, but I don't think we know yet what the knock-on impacts are and if long-term it's going to save money. So I think it's just quite an interesting one. And it kind of, I don't know how Medicare basically look at their budgets, but I can assume that it's slightly similar to how the NHS looks at their budgets, which is they look at a line item on the PL and decide it's too much and then just decide to cut it and they don't necessarily always think through the longer term the longer term implications. And a lot of that is because they're tied up with, with politics so much in the same way Medicare, Medicaid again heavily politicized. Therefore, you often do tend to think short term rather than long term because of just the nature of the way that the politics works. So I don't know, like if if I've interpreted it correctly, but it does just seem a little bit yeah. short sighted just to look at one line item and decide that it's too costly. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, but the thing we have to keep in mind: NHS and CMS, fee for service, and National Health Services completely different models. And one of the things that they're looking at, and I know that because of another story we covered a while back, they're trying to figure out how effective these things were. And the problem is in the fee-for-service model, what you have is significant entities, large entities trying to figure out, okay, is there another opportunity for revenue here? And we already talked about cuts that they're doing. And so they're sitting there going, well, they don't want it to decrease their office visits or their visits to the hospital or those kind of things, because that's what funds the model. Unfortunately, we're still a sick care system, not a healthcare system in the US. So, so CMS sort of looks back out of one eye and says, yeah, I see the benefits and we're going to fund those things. But these things, it seems like you guys are just trying to get more of more fees for doing the same services and it's not necessarily moving the needle. I, this is a, this is going to be a tough one, but I agree with you more data and tell the story through the data. Don't just, I mean, the politics of it, you know, the person who shouts the loudest is not the best way to make these decisions. Yeah. I guess the other thing I thought was quite interesting was like, it talked about, and you, I think picked up on this around like the urban areas having the highest take up. And I don't know if they were, because I mean, what we've seen, we partner with telehealth providers over here in the UK and what we've noticed is it's the rural populations that generally use it more on a kind of 
per capita basis, not looking at absolute numbers, but it's more valuable to people who can't get, get to the doctor very easily. So I was just wondering, I don't know what you thought about that piece where it was sort of talking about yeah. it is popular in urban areas. Yeah, um, that, that was my thought too. It has to just be sheer numbers. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, New York itself, if a percentage of that population does does telehealth, then it's going to be more than probably all of urban areas across the U.S. just because you probably haven't been to South Dakota, but there's large <laughs> swaths of land in between. And I, I imagine it's being used, in fact, I know it's being used pretty extensively in some of those areas, but just the number, the volume, the numbers of people is, is a lot lower. Yeah, I think that probably is right, because that didn't really make much sense to me based on what I've seen here. Melissa, it has been fantastic to discuss the news with you. I really appreciate the time. If people want to know more information about Lantum, where can they go? Well, they can go to www.lantum.com. Fantastic. Melissa, again, thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Really great to talk to you. What a great discussion. If you know of someone that might benefit from our channel from these kinds of discussions, please forward them a note, perhaps your team, your staff. I know if I were a CIO today, I would have every one of my team members listening to a show just like this one. It's conference level value every week. They can subscribe on our website, thisweekhealth.com. They can also subscribe wherever they listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast. You get the picture. We are everywhere. Go ahead, subscribe today. We want to thank our Newsday sponsors who are investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Those are CrowdStrike, Proofpoint, ClearSense, Meditech, Cedar sinai Accelerator, TalkDesk, and Dr. First. Thanks for listening. That's all for now.